0: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your drowned in the middle of the semester -er and A People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Christy Bauman. Christy is a therapist and author, including her most recent book, Theology of the Womb, Knowing God Through the Body of a Woman. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Chase Campbell. Chase is an indie folk artist from Memphis. You can get connected with both Christy and Chase Today I have Christy Bauman, and Christy is a therapist and a recent author. I don't, is this your first book, by the way?
2: Yeah, it's actually not, which is crazy. Okay, not your first book. It's my first, um, probably like real published, legitimately.
0: Okay, one of those. Okay, so and not not your first EP, but a first album, uh, if, yeah. if we want to yeah. make the analogy. Um, but it, you are the recent author of Theology of the Womb, and the subtitle is Knowing God Through the Body of a Woman, and I really love it. Uh, but before we start talking about the book, I have to know, Christy, who is Christy Bellman to Christy Bellman?
1: Oh,
2: that's so great. She's so much um, probably, you know, she is um, not maybe who she Actually, is every day. My fantasy me lives in Central America and dives and spearfishes days out of the week. (laughs) That is, I am a a mother and I live in Seattle, the Pacific Northwest, and I am in the cold, (laughs) gray in this season. And so, um, so yeah, I think there's part of me that will always be this southern, um, hot-blooded. Cajun girl who grew up near water mm. and mm-hmm. very like comfortable I I grew up hunting and I grew up um just in a very um more primitive kind of learning environment and then have been acclimated now to living in the Pacific Northwest for over a decade and um that is just a different person than my childhood and yet I come back to that core place in myself of like I love running in the heat in the sweat and hunting for my food which sounds just so not Pacific Northwest like my husband <laughs> squirrels sometime and I'm like looking at them too long and he said don't look at you can't shoot them we're in the city honey that's yeah, illegal the
0: whole, well the whole purpose of Seattle for existing is that you can amazon deliver your food right to your home now
2: exactly so no need for for me learning how to make a <laughs> girl sauce become no need but um yeah i think probably the core of me is always that like southern cajun girl um so yeah so that's who i am yeah in in my person inside inside of me maybe not what is uh, the exterior but right. definitely my it's
0: wonderful So let's talk about the book. What is something that you learned theologically or factually while writing the book that maybe you had no idea about before?
2: So growing up with Christianity being apart from my preschool to my PhD, I did not think I would be surprised by much just because (laughs) I had been in seminary and most of my degrees have had a Christian lens to them. So I didn't imagine I would be very surprised and yet I became aware of how God is more female than I ever imagined Mm. and um I thought I would be scraping to find scripture and to find things to equate God to as woman and um and it, there was a plethora, there was plenty, and there was a, so much so that there were some I didn't even quote in the book because mm. I didn't have enough time to do an exegesis on them. And so I think I was just surprised that, um, that God was so much more female in character than I had even kind of like secretly hoped.
0: Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, like depending on your hermeneutical lens that you grew up with, you aren't even allowed to encounter that part of God at all. Um, And and oftentimes, it's completely and outright ignored, um, where when you're reading the scriptures, you totally gloss over that. And it doesn't even become apparent to you until after the fact, when you put on a different hermeneutical lens.
2: Right. It's so true. And I think if anything, I thought scripture was against my case. Not even that I knew I had a case, Um, but I was always thinking, I feel called to teach and I'm not allowed to. And all I knew was the verse that told women to be quiet. Really, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. when I always condemn myself, I guess, with and then came to find it was just so much. I was so much more invited into the story that maybe patriarchal Christianity had told. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, yeah. so you mentioned that this is your second book. Um, and so you have kind of gone through a book writing process, but what, what was something maybe you learned about yourself while writing this book?
2: Oh, um, is that I like, I like my vulnerability more. I like mm-hmm. the, that my vulnerability brings feels more important to me than the actual, um, history or historical context. And yet as a woman trying to be taken serious and to be legitimate and really respected, I felt like I needed to put more of that than my previous book, which felt like a lot of just emotion and experience and story. I started moving towards more, Um, giving myself some, some research to back things up. Mm -hmm. Um, So not my favorite way to tell a story, but felt the need to kind of in a sense defend or to explain what Mm -hmm. I was finding. And so that's a little bit more in this book um, Mm -hmm. process. Surprised by. Yeah.
0: So speaking of vulnerability, you open up the book with uh, a story about your menarche. The first time you had your period Uh, What did you learn about God um, in the sort of exploration about bleeding, specifically bleeding from one's uterus?
2: Yeah. So obviously that is the secret women carry, right? It's this, it's this, um, act of shame and even in though Eastern cultures, it's not a shameful thing. It's actually celebrated. For Western culture, as far as I knew in the church, it was something to be ashamed of. I was Mm. always ashamed that blood would be found. I was um, ashamed. It it felt like it was dirty. And um, yet when I pushed into it, I was just like, why would God do this? And why would God start so early to bring that in a woman's life and let it last so long? Like, it just seemed like there was such a, there could have been a smarter way to do it um, without and so it made me believe it was a curse. Like it made me believe this is this is the curse women bear. Mm. And I have totally come full circle. And not that I enjoy my period, but God's suffering is such an invitation to understanding co-creation. And suffering creates some of the most beautiful things in this world, painfully but beautifully. And mm. and and I. So blood became, instead of shameful and gross, it became an invitation of suffering, like something is shed so that something can live. Hmm. And that felt like it drew me back to maybe the idea of what the creator was trying to explain to us all along.
0: Hmm. I really like that. (laughs) Uh, You also talk about breastfeeding um, and specifically about how breastfeeding is a really intensely intimate activity how does this really natural and intimate activity teach us about the ways in which God is intimate with us?
2: Oh, so I, um, I think the way that my first thought is you say breastfeeding and I, obviously I go to my, my children. Um, and, but I, I go to the, that shame has been a part again, where shame has come in around my breast yet there's this powerful act where my breast can bring a sustenance to my child that it needs nothing else. Mm. And that blows me away. Um, the, just the powerfulness of that, like, um, that can just, that it just happens with whether you're choosing to do that or not, like your body produces something that can grow a human. And so I think, um, How it connected me to God, though, is um, through the idea of weaning, actually. Like there's there's something so kind about God nourishing us, but there's something even more beautiful about God believing that I can do it on my own. Mm. And weaning me from, I, I, I use the gender roles kind of like in and out, but from his comfort or her comfort, like the belief of you can sustain yourself on your own. And if you, like, if you, when you need me, I will pour into you and I will comfort you. But like, you're actually able to do this on your own. You're created in my image and your body is good. And now it can grow and it can sustain itself. And it, I actually somehow feel like it's more the empowerment of let, let me nourish you and then let me free you to go Mm. and, and trust you to be able to feed yourself and to be able to like live in this world. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but I think that weaning has stayed with me a lot. That I, what does the mother actually believe about mm-hmm. the
0: child? That that reminds me a lot of um, how I've heard. In 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 a sense, one can interpret the Genesis three story of what you know is classically uh, entitled the fall. That is actually sort of this weaning story of humans giving the capacity given the freedom to to kind of move away from this um dependency on god um and of course in a in a sense that uh creates the the possibility for us to to mess up for us to be alienated from god but it also does give us the capacity to have a more fuller interdependent relationship with God, uh, rather than this dependent relationship. Um, and so this weaning in Genesis three is actually this really, um, important, uh, relational step between uh, relational step from, of God and creation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I really, really agree with that statement and I love that you can put words to that because it feels really true how it, that it's an important stage in our development and our relationship.
3: The father you go home to
0: lay you down I know one of the things that you also talk about throughout the book, um, or at least within one of the chapters in the book, uh, is, is about sex, to put it bluntly. Uh, what is something or what can good sex, even like you even mentioned orgasmic sex, what can good and orgasmic sex teach us about God's relationship with creation?
2: Oh, you know, I what I would say is I have so much to say about this, but I just... <laughs> about how um, sex has become like prayer for me in the last Mm. couple, and how it has power. And if you put intention to it, there is something deeper than maybe what we're taught sex is supposed to um, kind of be about. And I would say that honestly, and I've said this again and again, I would give up sex in a second for the harm that it has cost people. Mm. And I think Living in the world of being a therapist and hearing about sexual abuse and hearing about sexual harm, um, and hearing about how objectification has made people into objects instead of actually the imago day and images of God. Mm -hmm. And I think because I carry that um, knowing, those stories, in a sense, part of me wants to be like, God, sex wasn't worth it for the harm that it's caused. And yet, when I push in, to think like, what was your plan here? Like, what is, there's gotta be something more here. There's such a power in vulnerability and being known, and there's such a power in pleasure. And I think we don't talk about that because it either seems maybe narcissistic or it seems self-centered, but there's something about pleasure that is, uh, you know, it's something about glory that I think we Mm. get to try to actually engage. And yet, what is our like? What do we have dominion over? Like, we can bring pleasure in relationship and in in sexual relationship. And there's something really cool about that. And there's something known of God in that. And I think we're so to talk about it because it's taboo. And yet, I think um, evil's getting away with a lot because it's not afraid to talk about it. And I just feel like maybe people, um, in the church have maybe failed to explore what God's intention was, um, with sex and with pleasure. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, I could go into that forever, but I, I would just say overall, I just think there's power and I think there's prayer in these acts of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've just been too nervous to talk about it. Um, right. missing out.
0: It, it reminds me a lot of. Um... Many mystics, medieval mystics in particular, um, especially uh, women who are mystics, often describe their mystical experiences with God in really eros terms, and really sexual imagery. Um, And so if if there's any sort of insight that we can learn from their experiences, it's that uh, this sort of mystical experience with God often uh, is in a way, manifested most closely to how we understand uh, our experience with sex. Uh, so I think that's really fascinating and really insightful to think about how, um, how sexual experience uh, is something that really can be man- a, a learning opportunity, a, a theologically learning opportunity for us uh, to understand who God might be and how our relationship with God might um,
2: Sure. And that's what I keep trying, or I think the theme is there's a theology in the woman's body. And so whether that's her sexual arousal, the cycle of her sexual arousal, it's very different. Uh, I would say it's sometimes different than a man. It Mm. it feels like there's a difference in our bodies. And yet the woman, her sexual arousal is to bring historically um, the other to the divine.
0: Mm. The amount
2: of time that is required or the invitation is actually to know the divine. And there's something that we pass over when we don't actually promote that. And I, another thing is, I, God wouldn't have given us a clitoris um, that yeah. has no. Yeah,
0: I remember fun- that part of the book too.
2: Yeah, no right. physical function other than pleasure. And why? And it has more, you know, nerve endings than the head of the penis. So why? I, I just want I want anyone to sit with that question and try to combat it. W- what was God doing? Obviously, inviting us to something, something.
0: Mm-hmm. You no, know? mm-hmm. yeah. One of the things that I, I would like to to dive a little bit deeper in is again, you ent- entitled the book "Theology of the Womb," um, and and so something that I was thinking about as I was coming up with questions um, and reading the book was the idea of womb. To me, is this um, the space of strength and fragility, right? Where, uh, obviously we, we talk about just like the sheer, uh, the sheer strength that women have, um, as they are literally growing another human being in inside their uterus um so so there is that sense to it but also the the fragility that w- is growing within inside the womb right this little this child this this originally a fetus and then grows into this child and and it's precarious for a long time right um so one of the things that i i was thinking of is what can we learn about the fragility of god If we understand God, uh, at least in the Christian tradition, as God incarnating in Christ through a womb, so what can we learn about the fragility of God uh, with this idea of the incarnation being one in which God incarnates into Christ through a woman's womb?
2: Right, and and we don't have much. I mean, besides someone just saying there was immaculate conception. If there's Catholicism that's coming in to bring that concept we don't talk about the nine months in utero that Christ Mm. in that state of fragility. And we don't talk about a manger theology. We don't talk about a birthing theology of what it takes to be coached out of a body and to breathe air again. I mean, so um, all that say, I mean, I think I'm begging women who are walking through birth to be exploring this and like actually, you know, thinking about this lens, but Christ's fragility, man, there's something about his need to be held and loved and fed and sheltered that we don't as all powerful as he is. And if he really came as human incarnate, like then then there were nine months that were really precarious, that, it, that Mary could have gone to the bathroom and found blood. Mm. And we don't talk about possibly what that was like to have faith. And I think so many women walk through these nine months of fear or miscarriage or stillbirth or birth, and there is fear. Mm. And we struggle with what it means to have faith, to bring and hope and birth life into this world. And so, um, I also think a baby needs that they need a woman to stand fast in that and to raise them and to care for them and to nurture them. And Christ needed that. And again, we don't talk about that, but Christ needed a mother to carry and nourish and birth and hold and feed, um, and shelter and protect him. Mm -hmm. And then you know and then you fast forward to the madonna and mary holding jesus when he's off the cross and so again what is that process of even jesus needing his mother mm. both times when there was blood where where when life came and when death came mm. and was being held by a mother like mm-hmm. that's that's a that's a remarkable like thing to actually ponder mm-hmm. to me
0: One of the things that was really interesting that I recently learned is, uh, so I'm in seminary and I took a course on the Gospel of John, Um, and I'm not sure if the passion narratives in the three synoptic Gospels uh, have the same description, but at least in the Gospel of John, there's this really quick thing uh, that's mentioned um, right before Jesus is killed um, that I think a lot of people probably pass over. but. What's really curious is there's this mentioning of when Jesus gets stabbed in, uh, in, on, the, on his side, there is both not just blood, but water. Um, and a lot of feminist biblical scholars will sort of indicate that there is this womb in imagery that's happening here um, that is really sort of gender-bending in a way, um, but also really um, an emphasis on the, 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 the sort of fragility again uh, of the womb. Um, And, but again, you know, sort of this disruptive thing to think about Jesus having this imagery or, you know, as he's being killed, there's this womb that pours out of him. Anyway, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, That's more of a comment. But uh, I think that's a really interesting thing that I just recently learned about sort of Jesus and this idea of Jesus even having a womb, at least in the the John narrative.
2: Right. And I I just, I love that you point that out because I have always remembered when I hear that verse, blood and water poured out. And not until I birthed a child did I understand what it meant. Water to pour out, and that is what I talk about in the book. It's like once our bodies, once a mother's body breaks to birth a child, like I do want to know that God understood that, and I do feel like that's the moment where Jesus says, I know what it is to break my body, Mm. birth life. Now, I think he's saying eternal life, um, but there's a sense of like, I feel known in that moment when you say that, I'm like, Yeah, I, he. Gets it. He Mm -hmm. did it. He lived Mm -hmm. through it. And he's inviting me Mm -hmm. to not in it because birthing, though you're birthing a human, it can be the loneliest process. Though you have a partner Mm -hmm. with you, coaching you, it is one of the loneliest, scariest. I mean, it's just, it's such a primal place. And so to know that Christ has been there with the suffering, with the pain, with the pouring out of his body, with the breaking of his body, I just, Again, Phil I feel seen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gives you chills, right? It's great.
3: Yeah. Your friends say that they love you
0: then. Um, I, I'm really curious about um you know, in the book one of the things that I, I was curious to read is um sort of understanding that not all women are mothers, um, but also on, you know, honoring that, but also the fact that there is really important ways to imagine God as mother. So how does seeing God as mother disrupt ways we think about God um, versus, you know, something like God as father? Yeah.
2: Um, Well, so first it is interesting because um, just to address your first point of there are women who don't want to have children and there are women who can't have children. And, um, people have asked me, does is the book not applicable in that sense? And I'm like, Nope, the theology of the womb is about the life, death, life cycle and creating. And we all men and women are always creating Mm. and our women are just invited in a more intimate way in their bodies to create, but we're always creating and Mm. we're always, point burying something and we're always then given the invitation to decide if we want to try and create something again after we've buried and so um i i think um when you say what is like kind of the difference i was thinking um in hebrew scripture like the word mercy comes from rachmin which is like a motherly love of a woman um as she holds her child and it's basically translates to Lord Jesus Christ, would you mother me? Like, would you have mercy on me? Would you mother me? Mm. And, um, in my own personal story, I lost my firstborn son. And after that, I was, I didn't even know how to put words to it, but I was, I did not trust fully a male God because Mm. I didn't think God could understand my mother heart and losing my child and bearing. And I could kind of associate it with Mary, but I didn't trust God to be mother, but I was desperate for God to be mother. And I went on this quest after that, because if I was going to believe in this God who knew my heart intimately, then I needed God to be mother. And um, I have come to Almost come back to God because I trust His motherly heart, and like that's that rock me and like Lord Jesus, would you mother me? Mm-hmm. I trust I trust the mother heart of God.
0: Mm-hmm. I can see one maybe having a hesitation on the onset of reading this book, and that being that it could err towards sort of this gender essentialism. Um, what are ways in which you hope that this book disrupts any notion of sort of unilaterally defining what being a woman uh, is and how it's experienced?
2: Right. I um had those same
0: <laughs> hesitations.
2: I mean, I just I grew up where it just was wrong to think of God in any other category as f- than father mm-hmm. and son of god. and and at best, I was allowed that the Holy Spirit had a feminine air but i mean that was best. i was not allowed to think about god as female at all and it still feels sacrilegious to say it now so i can understand people's hesitation my pushback would be if we really believe that god has no gender or transcends gender right then then god is both and if god says i created you in my image I can't help, but believe that, believe. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways I feel like it was almost God asking me to let it be more true that what he says is I've created you in my image. And so if I am made in the image of God, then if I have to be so technical, God has a clitoris and a uterus and a vagina Mm -hmm. and breath. And that is not even just on me. That's in scripture. And that's what I loved is God claims to be the mother, to be the uterus, to be the midwife, to be breast, like El Shaddai, like mountain of, of breast in which I hide under. Yeah, like there's something of where I had to get over myself because I had made this wall that God couldn't be she. And again, even as I say that, it just sounds so foreign on mm-hmm. my tongue. And yet I feel like if I'm going to be honest, scripture challenged me to think differently mm-hmm. than I thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even like I wanted to convince myself. I kept
1: finding
2: <laughs> yeah. this that I have to get over myself and what I feel comfortable oh. with. Now, is it scripturally attributed God, the father and God, the son? Yes. That is just how it is. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to work to counteract that. I don't feel like I even need to. That's not the point, but I'm going to let when God attributes himself to woman or mother or feminine aspects, I'm going to allow that. Mm. And I'm going to, and I'm going to have enough faith to believe it.
3: say that you're happy
0: where you are today i have chase campbell and chase uh we are both friends with a friend named caleb knight uh, caleb's wonderful and uh anytime he says hey you should uh, check out this person's music I usually trust Caleb's opinion on that, uh, and he came through again. I really dig the music. I really dig that sort of folky sound, but also uh, th- there's like an indie element. There's an experimental element that I like about your your sound as well. So, with that said, I- I'm really curious about some of the the uh, well. You had your single last year, uh, and then you have uh, some music prior to that. What kind of uh what what sort of inspiration goes behind not only just having that like kind of singer songwriter sound that folky sound but kind of having that nuance of like there's this experimental nature to it there's this like minimal minimalist nature to it what's what's going behind that yeah man
3: uh honestly I think that it might just be um all of the influences that I've had
1: mm
3: um So I don't know if it's so much me experimenting as it is just, like, just doing what I know. And, uh, Mm. uh, like, some of my greatest inspirations are, like, Dave Matthews' band. So that's, like, where I get a lot of that folky sound. Um, But then the indie, man, I'll tell you what. That's, like, I mean, I know David Bowie isn't indie. He's more, like, rock, I guess. But it's super, like new wavy i'm i'm by no means new wave
1: but i'm saying like <laughs> right
3: like a lot of that inspiration yeah. is just like it all leaks through and it just kind of it just kind of happens it's not like i'm trying to do
0: something crazy yeah totally is there a particular i mean that's with your sound is there a particular lyricist that you're really inspired by um or you feel like a, a lot of the way in which you form your lyrics is mm-hmm. inspired by any particular lyricist
3: I would say um, Bear Reinhardt
0: um, oh. from
3: the band Need the Breeze.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's uh, a, that that was, was a that was a throw from left field that I wasn't expecting. Yeah.
3: I'm sorry, but that's it. Like I, the way he writes is um, r- really amazing. Also, dude, I love um, like old school rock and roll. Mm. So like Johnny Cash. A lot of a lot of like um my lyrics aren't quite as story esque as theirs. Right. But um that there's like this emotional depth that I think is is something that I drew from like Elvis, Johnny Cash, Bob mm-hmm. Dylan. Not so much
0: Elvis, but like
3: Johnny Cash, Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. Um in that era.
0: Yeah, that, that like that fifties rockabilly, yeah. rock and roll kind of era. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get it. Well I, I'm I'm curious about some of the lyrical content that you have in your recent releases. Um, Are there like any, is there like any common themes that you're trying to express in, uh, in those lyrics? Or I mean, maybe I mean, you know, obviously, lots of music uh, has to do with like love and heartbreak. Is there anything around those lines? Maybe there are other themes. Maybe like there's family things or political things that you're trying yeah. to explore. Uh, but what what are like some themes, main themes that you're trying to uh, convey in your lyrics of the last few releases? Okay, um,
3: so my most recent release was harder, and that was last year, I believe, in actually February, so almost a year ago exactly, mm. but. Um, I think it was like February seventeenth, and that's sorry. Besides the point, um, that whole song I wrote in my dorm room uh, with my best friend uh, Tad Jewett, um, and that whole song was just about like expressing how it feels to move far away from home. Um, mm. I'm from I'm from uh, Pennsylvania. Okay, and I, I live in Memphis now, so it's it's a ways away. Uh-huh. And and for me, I guess whenever I write, especially with that song, it really comes through with the song harder. Um, my, my lyrics, I try and make them, if it's not like a fun, like rock, rockin' song, whatever, I try to make them as honest um, as I possibly can and just like have integrity in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just try and express how I feel because it's like, it's definitely my outlet. You know what I mean? To express.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned to me that you're a student, uh, which probably entails most of your life. Uh, I, I certainly know what it's like to be a student. I was an undergrad for a few years and then also now I'm a graduate student. So I very much know that that kind of consumes the totality of your life. I, I'm curious um, how do you mix in some singer songwriter? uh time and energy like it feels like that's a that's that's going to take up a lot of your time as well uh how do you kind of balance being a student being a full-time student and also um being a songwriter and being a musician
3: uh if i'm being 100 honest um not too well Uh, (laughs) (laughs) we're all fumbling through um but uh I actually go to school for music. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a performance major. So, honestly, whenever I was like, I'm just gonna go for it. No safety nets. Don't need a business degree. Screw it. I don't. I don't. I don't want to distract myself from what I really want. Right. Um, I was just like, I'll just go to school for <laughs> vocal performance because that's kind of like a joke, if I'm being honest. Or like, <laughs> you know what I mean. So I was like, I'll get a degree where I can uh, study what I want to study, but also like not be too overwhelmed. Because if we're being honest, like (laughs) vocal performance is not the most difficult major, if not the easiest major in the Mm -hmm. world. It's just like, if you can sing, then it's (laughs)
0: easy. So uh, kind of in lieu of that, being a person who is studying music right uh there there must be some like element of okay in one respect i'm doing this because this is homework and like on an intellectual level i'm having to learn these sort of things Mm. uh and and sometimes that can like distract you from the artistic elements of being an artist right um how do you how do you balance that that dynamic that's going on there of sort of you know, doing the, the things that you need to do because it's homework and because it's the, the, the part of the course, uh, but also feeling like sometimes that might detract from like your own creativity and your own artistry. Is yeah, that, or is that even a tension that you even sense?
3: Ab- absolutely, okay. absolutely. Um, however, I'm really good at like ignoring tensions, but <laughs> it's, definitely, it's definitely there, if I'm being honest. Uh, it is, um, it's very, it's really difficult even though maybe more so because i'm a student in what i desire to do as a career um it's uh it's really challenging because i'm sure anyone actually that goes to school for what they want to do really struggles with this or does what they want to do Mm -hmm. because it's just like sometimes the joy of it goes away Mm -hmm. um which is a really crappy feeling um but, it, but even in that time, I'm able to be like, okay, you know what would make me feel really great right now? If I, if I wrote a song mm-hmm. or if I, just, if I just played guitar and whatever. Um, so it's really easy to feel overburdened. But whenever I start to feel um, a certain way, uh, good, bad, whatever that might be, I, I typically just always am like all right, I'm going to go write a song because mm-hmm. I'm sad or because I'm happy. Um, so it is difficult to always be excited about music, but I guess being an artist and a student, it, that, I don't find the struggle there so much. It's more right. so finding the joy um, okay. because I mean, yeah, I am an artist and I, like, I can't change that. Right. And I am a student and I'm paying for it. And I, I don't I like I'm paying for it. So I'm right. going to have to do it.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, your last release was in almost a year ago, like you said, in February of last year. Um, what do you have going down the pipeline? Like what, what can we expect here in the future?
3: Yeah. Um, so I am kind of taking a step back from my solo stuff and I just started a band. Um, this past year i think it was december um we're called rose Mm. and uh i'll tell you what we're really good um (laughs) we have so much fun uh the guys that i play with um like whenever we play music together i've never had so much fun in my entire life Mm. um and it's just it's wonderful it's it's more rock um but it's it's just, a, it's a blast. And we actually have a show. We had a, some Nashville band, I think their name is Vu. It's either Vu or Vue. I feel really okay. bad. Uh, it's V-E-A-U-X. They're okay. really good. Yeah. They're like 1975-ish. Uh, okay. And they contacted us and they were like, just on Instagram, like, hey, will you open up for us? Wow. And so I was like, oh yeah, I'll open up for you. Like, well, of course. So that's pretty cool, and then we uh, we're going to be working on um, an album, a full length album here shortly. Okay, and all the songs are written; it's just studio time.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, I would gladly have that band featured on on this podcast as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be great. That'd be super wonderful. So, uh, Chase, thank you again for sharing your music. I'm a big fan of it. I again, I really love like any sort of uniqueness to the singer songwriter genre uh and the the folky genre like it tends to be kind of convoluted with a lot of generic uh nonsense uh but i really love that experimental nature you have there there's there's certainly an element to it that's different than what i've heard from a lot of other artists especially a lot of young artists like yourself so uh i i really appreciate the music and yeah hopefully we can get the new band on here sometime soon that'd be great What
1: you lost, you find yourself in what you lost. You find yourself in what you lost.
0: This book is a very bodily one, clearly. What's something that you learned about your own body in writing this book?
1: Hmm. You know, what was
2: challenging that I didn't think so is that um, so many women came and said like, oh, you're just, you're just real honest here. You're just real honest. <laughs> and um, I think that's how just my mind works. I'm just pretty honest with myself. But I think the part that really got me, in a way that I've done this work before is doing scar work after having children or after having surgeries or just in aging. I had to do a lot of um, like self-care and maybe like redefining and renaming of how my body has started to look and change. And I think I will have to continue doing that as I age. And as um, I go into climacteric and menopause, like I will have to keep redefining what to do with this beauty that is shifting.
1: Mm.
2: So um, that was probably the biggest thing for the book for me is that I actually found that I'm, I don't know if I would say excited, but I feel invited
1: Mm. into Mm -hmm.
2: my aging body and will I bless it or will I curse it? and that feels so in the forefront of my mind that i literally cannot i can't make a comment about myself without feeling convicted mm-hmm. like i have this um image when i look in the mirror i can't even judge the bags under my eyes or the wrinkles i it's like i'm not allowed to anymore because they have story mm-hmm. and I am now in charge of that, and there's power over my words. And what does God say about those places in me? And so I think I was surprised at my own like conviction out Mm -hmm. of what I, if I really believe what I said in there, then I need to redefine my scars and my body and my aging body. And I need to really trust that God had a plan that it only becomes more telling of the story Mm -hmm. of the bigger.
0: Mm -hmm. How do you see this book being inspiring and liberating theological work?
2: How do I see it being inspiring and embodying
0: and liberating,
2: liberating? Well, I feel like that's easy. I mean, I just think because still we're so still trying to find our voice as women in, in this world and in this culture, in this, in a theology, I feel like if women actually just take one chapter of what I'm challenging, whether it's, you know, to look at their blood different or to look at the way their reproductive years are different or to look at the way they age differently and actually own it. I think that will be liberating. My push in the book is women to own their voices and Mm -hmm. to know that is my like, My number one push, my hope, my dream out of this book is that so many women would find their voice and begin to speak, begin to sing, begin to lead. I I just, I can't, I can't long for anything more than that with this. Um, and I think for men, I really, really hope it invites them to start telling the story, to start telling the gospel from two sides, like, or more sides than just their own and again, not that I am against the male side of telling things. the male lens has so much to teach us, but I think it's so complementary with the female lens and so that's where I hope it's liberating for churches where I think women have been taught a false submission rather than invited to actually the conversation and mm-hmm. to uh, actually have have a voice in it and then bring us to know God more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are some hopes that I have.
0: That's great. Last question, how can listeners get connected to you and your work?
2: Yeah. Um, so um, my husband and I, we obviously, we're both therapists, and we do a lot of um, couples work together. I do a lot of female voice work in the therapeutic sense. I, mm. I do a lot around um, sexuality and sexual health with women. So I mean, obviously just my website is a way to connect if um people want that service. I've been starting um these more womaneering weekends where women are either taking their own kids, sons or daughters, on trips where they're actually doing rites of passage or women are doing rites of passage in their own story mm-hmm. amongst everybody. So I feel like these are ways I'm trying to kind of invite people into taking themselves on and listening to what their stories are telling them. Um, so that's definitely a way to connect. Um, I, my book before this, A Brave Lament, and then I I'm actually made a documentary film um, about this. And that is also called A Brave Lament. And um, it's focus is on grief, and, but how grief, how the discipline of grief and suffering can bring us to tell a story in a really honest and and passionate way. And so, um, those are other, my other works could be ways to connect to me. Um, I've been doing a lot of speaking engagements, which has been really fun. I, I really like to go into churches and talk with women and men. I I really do. I when I'm given the stage in a sense, I, I like to just, kind of blow people's minds in a way that they leave different Mm -hmm. and that they don't need me to come back again. (laughs) I just, one time, I mean, I literally, there's some things that I just need to be like, did you know this? And I, I think people, it awakens something in them and then they start running. And so, um, yeah, I'm in the business of waking up hearts and voices and, and, um, people's stories. And so that's what I want to do. Um, So I think mostly, again, my website, my books, um, and really, really my hope. And the reason I even put questions at the end of each chapter is my hope is that women would do this in groups, Mm. in in churches, in communities, women sisterhoods that are trying to be closer together. Like I, I would hope that they would just become closer in telling their stories to each Mm -hmm. other.
0: Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, I love the book, Christy. It was so great. And uh, I appreciate even hearing some of the, the things behind the book, some of your passions behind the book, um, and even talking a little bit deeper about some of the things that you wrote in the book. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you. I
2: appreciate it so much.
3: I it so much. With her sweet face, so taste. She's in my mind. Sweet face, a wild taste She's in my mind Get your hands off my bottle get your eyes back to your feet get your hands off my bottle get your eyes back to your feet get your hands off